Blog Talk Radio. <coughs> Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday night. It is January the 27th, 2023. I'm so happy that you're able to join me tonight. Uh, And before we get started, I I am compelled to make note that today is Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, where we remember the victims of the Holocaust, not only Jewish people, you know, over 13 million perished because of the Nazi rampage through Europe. But we also need to understand what happens when governments foster hatred, division, resentment. Um, One of the biggest concerns that I have is that the so-called woke philosophy that is permeating our country, permeating our schools, seems to be focused on doing just that white privilege, um, resentment. You know, every group of people suffer greatly because of stupidity, because of bigotry, um, because of racism, whatever you want to call it, ignorance, you know, the the way the the Irish were treated, the way the Jews were treated, the way the blacks were treated. It goes on throughout history. We become tribal. We develop an us-against-them mentality, and that's one of the most dangerous philosophies that anybody could have. It's horrible. My family was decimated in the Holocaust. Uh, For me, it has a very personal meaning. Um, I was named for my mother's mother, who could not get out of Poland and was killed during the Holocaust. My mother uh, was forced to separate from her mom when she was 13 years old and to her dying day. She would get up in the middle of the night frequently, crying, howling. I mean, when she was in her 50s, uh, we lost her to cancer in her 50s. But it's forever altered her trajectory. We look at what's happening in Ukraine with the attacks on the civilian population. I know there are people saying, well, it's not our war. When you see atrocities committed against human beings, it becomes everyone's concern. The Holocaust could have been ended long before it was ended. Lives could have been saved. There's a wonderful movie I recommend to everybody. Perhaps this is a good night to watch it. Schindler's List. Uh, We're a Christian. Uh, Schindler did whatever he could do to save as many Jewish lives as possible. Um, We need to speak out. We need to be courageous. What's that saying? That for evil to succeed doesn't require the bad people to do anything but good people to do nothing. We really are compelled to try to reach out to our fellow human beings and especially our fellow Americans, irrespective of what I call superficial issues, race, religion, ethnicity, is superficial. And nobody asks to be born into any religion, asks to be born as a man or a woman, asks to be born as black, white, purple, whatever. We land where we land, and we should be judging ourselves and each other by our achievements, by our morality, by our decency, by our compassion. Uh, And final note, there's nothing liberal about the lunatic left. And when people refer to the liberals as bleeding-heart liberals. I just want you to think about the words and the impact they have and how they are perceived. To refer to someone as a bleeding-heart liberal, you're saying, my God, this guy is too damn compassionate. Who would you want for a friend, the cold-hearted SOB or somebody who has compassion, who's concerned about their fellow human being? Uh, my dad wasn't particularly religious. We're Jewish. My dad really wasn't religious, and my mom was, and I'm kind of, uh, I don't know where I am in all this business. I'm certainly Jewish, though. That's, that's very clear. But my dad said, what's more important, Mike, to go to synagogue regularly or to be honest and honorable, help people when you can? If you see a dog running through traffic, you do everything possible to save that dog so it doesn't get mowed down by a truck. He said, that's really what religion, no matter what faith we talk about, should be about, about doing good deeds. In Yiddish, there's a term, it's called mitzvah, a good deed. 
a random act of kindness. I just worry with all the violence, all the divisiveness, the way our children are being brought up and twisted, uh, this notion about, you know, sex is fluid. It's what you feel like you are in a particular day. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but in my humble opinion, that's nuts. And it's doing great harm to a generation of Americans. And maybe that's the goal. Maybe the goal is to destroy America from within so that the fiercely independent American that created this incredible government went to war numerous times to save the world, to make the world free. We've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of that. People, even former fellow colleagues of mine have asked me, Mike, when you went to Congress, when you took on management and immigration, weren't you fearful? And of course, you know, you you go after an agency, it's serious. I, I was a whistleblower. I was removed the day after I testified before the Immigration Reform Caucus about five or six weeks after 9-11. My bigger issue was that my country was attacked. My hometown was attacked. The ashes landed on my house. And some of my buddies said, wow, I wouldn't have had the balls to do what you did. Maybe that's what's wrong with America. We've gotten soft. We've gotten lazy. We've gotten gullible. Our nation is certainly worth defending and worth saving. I wasn't a big fan of Ronald Reagan. I was a lifelong, still a lifelong Democrat. The problem is the Democrats aren't Democrats. But he did say some things that I agreed with 100%. I certainly didn't like his immigration policies, not even a tiny bit. But I didn't like that there are too many conservatives that think that the civil servants are the problem. No, the civil servants aren't the problem, folks. It's the people who lead them. There's a Yiddish expression that when the fish goes bad, it smells from the head. Police officers, firefighters, EMTs, these are all civil servants. The people that inspect food, they're civil servants. We want their services, but we want them to be executed effectively and on behalf of the average American. And when that doesn't happen, don't blame the, you know, it's like blaming the soldier in the trenches for the strategy of the war. Blame the generals. As I said, when the fish goes bad, it smells from the head. But one thing Ronald Reagan said that I agreed with completely, he said that freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. Think about that. We really, I believe, are at crossroads. And I also remember that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with whom I didn't always agree either. Actually, my kids went to the same school she attended, and I was asked to address the auditorium at that high school um, after 9-11 when I'd come back from Congress. And I did. It was a great honor. I think I made a couple of my kids very uncomfortable. They were in attendance at the school at the time. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the mascot of the United States should not be the bald eagle, but the pendulum. Because somehow America has always figured out when that pendulum swings too far to the nutty extreme, whichever it is, we seem to always find a way to push it back towards the center. We need to start pushing, folks. We really do. We need to get our voices heard. We need to stop being compliant and complacent. Uh, we need to uh, art articulate our concerns and, and sit down with our neighbors. And I don't care about the small R or the small D, and those letters are getting smaller by the heartbeat because all too many politicians are actually what I call republicrats. They're on the same side because they're getting money from the same people. I've spoken about it at length. I spoke about it last week, how both sides really want open borders. They really do. They could say what they want, but solely focusing on the Mexican border and ignoring all the other ways that aliens can enter the United States how aliens can game the immigration system. And then both sides stand before microphones and say, well, once we secure the Mexican border, which is a fake, um, you know, goal, because there's other ways in, yes, we've got to secure the Mexican border. Don't for a heartbeat misunderstand me. We do need to secure that damn border. But we have aliens, drugs, and, and everything else pouring in through international airports along our 95,000 miles of coastline and through the Canadian border. The Mexican border is only one hole in what I call the immigration colander. Plugging one hole in the colander doesn't turn the colander into a, a water-secure bucket. Plugging one hole in the bottom of your boat when you have many other holes 
doesn't keep the boat from winding up at the bottom of the lake. But the politicians from both sides, oh, well, once we secure the border, then we can work across the aisle. I, I call that collusion. To legalize the people who are here now, this would be catastrophic, not because I'm a xenophobe or I'm anti-immigrant, but I understand the reality of the situation. This could lead to an influx of tens of millions of more aliens without vetting. There's no way of vetting people unless you sit them down and go out on the street and do field investigations. And people keep using the term background check. Just so you understand, a background check is not the same thing as a background investigation. I held a top-secret clearance. Uh, and no, I don't have any classified documents in my garage. Just had to make that point. But my background investigation that was renewed every few years took days, weeks. I was interviewed by several investigators. They fanned out. They knocked on neighbors' doors. They pulled up bank records and perhaps phone records. I signed a waiver that said you can go wherever you want to go, do what you want to do, and talk to anybody you want to talk to. A background check means running a name and fingerprints through a computer. It takes a couple of minutes. It's kind of like when we used to go to the mall, maybe some of you still do, they used to have that blood pressure cuff. You'd stick your arm in the machine, and they would tell you what your blood pressure is. That's not a medical exam. It's a blood pressure check. If you want a full exam, you go to the hospital and maybe spend a couple of days being x-rayed and scanned and probed and poked. Uh, that's, a, a, you know, a real um, checkup, right? That's a real medical examination. Think of what the astronauts went through. That's an examination. Shoving your hand in a, in a cuff so they could measure your blood pressure, and maybe if you're lucky, they'll take your temperature. Boy, oh, boy, think of all the ailments that that could miss if that's what your goal is. A background check won't even be able to ascertain the true identity of the person whose background is being checked. So understand what we're dealing with. And tonight we're going to talk about three cases in the news, major, major cases. Every one of them has a nexus to immigration. Every one of them uh, would have been very different if immigration had done its job. That's how significant it is. And none of these cases, incidentally, boys and girls, have anything whatsoever to do with the Mexican border. What do you think of that? There is far more to immigration than the Mexican border. And this is, again, a false metric. And we heard it back in 2003 or 2004 when they were pushing comprehensive immigration reform. Back then, I testified at a couple of the hearings, and I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Times where I said that they should really rename comprehensive immigration reform and give it a more honest and descriptive name. I suggested calling it the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act because we have no way of knowing who in the world these people are. And remember, when they came here, they violated the law. They snuck in. They trespassed. They entered without inspection. They didn't enter undocumented. That's Orwellian. That's like saying a guy that robs a bank made an undocumented withdrawal. Or a drunk driver is sobriety challenged, okay? Or a rapist is an overeager suitor. Let's find words that make things sound like what they aren't. Suddenly, every illegal alien is an asylum seeker. Why? Because this administration entertains what they know are bogus applications for political asylum. And in so doing, we're insulting the governments of countries that we work with. Because to qualify for asylum, and I remember when I was on Megyn Kelly at Fox News, right after the Boston Marathon bombing, she said, oh, the Tsarnaev brothers, they wanted asylum because the country they're in is so terrible. No, that's not why you get asylum. Lots of countries are terrible. Half the world, maybe more, lives below the poverty line. Political asylum means you have a credible fear. And think about that this Memorial Day for the Holocaust. You have a credible fear that you face persecution or worse because of your race, because of your religion, because of your ethnicity, because of your tribal affiliations. We've added to that your sexual orientation and certainly your political beliefs. Not that you live in poverty, not that the gangs are nasty, not that you can't find a job. Those are economic refugees, but there is no such thing as an economic refugee. So we allow these people in. They fill out an application for asylum. We're told that they are being, you know, vetted. I'd like to know how. We're admitting thousands a day. Uh, they're just streaming into the country. And then they're dispersing all over the United States, and they're from countries all over the world. 
But the media says they're asylum seekers. And you know, most Americans are very compassionate. Our compassion, our worldwide um, accepted and revered compassion has been turned into a weapon to be used against us. They see in our compassion a weakness to be exploited. Oh, my God, the guy's an asylum seeker. We have to help him. If the person doesn't fall into that group that I just described about who is really eligible to receive asylum when they have a credible fear, this is the equivalent. You know, I like using analogies. This is the equivalent of saying that a homeless person who goes out and buys a lottery ticket is an aspiring millionaire. His or her odds might even be better at getting that million than the alien who's not qualified for asylum getting political asylum. And if they're denied asylum, which will happen in well over 90% of the cases, we don't have the agents to look for them. And neither party talks about the need for interior enforcement. And that, to me, is critical and the key to all that we're seeing. There is no interior enforcement. Parties bear the responsibility. It's interior enforcement that enabled the terrorists not only to enter the United States or a lack of interior enforcement, but to embed themselves, get false identities, in many cases get lawful status and go about their deadly preparations. And we're going to discuss that today, in fact, with my very first case that we're going to talk about. If you look at the website, uh, there's an individual who was the special agent of the New York office of um, special agent in charge of the counter uh, intelligence division of the New York field office for the FBI. So I want to start out by telling you that as an immigration agent, I spent many years working in close coordination with the FBI, had many friends in the Bureau, and for 10 years I had a desk at the FBI because I was part of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. And like any other agency, some of these people were really excellent, and some of them were pains in the neck, but I will tell you that the great majority were dedicated, hardworking, and wanted to get the job done and wanted to protect America. They understood the importance of their mission the same way as immigration agents, the same way as Border Patrol agents, who, by the way, are all civil servants, for those of you that keep on grumbling about civil servants. And the problem that we have at the FBI doesn't come from the field agents, but from the top of the food chain, because, again, when the fish goes bad, it smells from the head. So we have this, this FBI. He's not just the supervisor. He's above the supervisor. If this was the military, he would be a general. You know, they say that if you want to put a spy into an agency, put him in the file room. I would argue the better place is make him a translator, as we'll see in this case, because translators are critical. Translators get to meet the agents. They get to meet defendants and confidential informants. They get to meet other people. They get to see documents. They become the mouth, the ears, and the eyes for every participant in, a, in, a, in an interrogation, in an interview. Think of all the sensitive information that passes through them. It's kind of like the medium, um, you know, doing ghostbusting, okay? Everything flows back and forth through that translator, through that interpreter. That's how critical the job is. And time and again, we've seen interpreters working for the bad guys but being hired by us. I just wrote an article for Front Page Magazine about one such translator who's charged now with having a strong affiliation with ISIS. And he was in Afghanistan, undoubtedly helping to vet people that came here. And by the way, you should know that the FBI uh, put an application in for over $15 million just a short while ago, reported on by the Washington Times. For what purpose? To hunt down the Afghanis who floated into the United States, flooded into the United States after we turned tail under Biden's brilliant leadership uh, and, and jumped on airplanes and came here by whatever means possible. We have no clue who we let in. And I always want you to remember the number 19. 19. It was 19 terrorists on 9-11 who killed more people than we lost to the Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And we've admitted tens of thousands of people from the Middle East. And we have no idea where they are or even who they are or what they might be affiliated with. This is the stuff of Mike Cutler's personal nightmares. Welcome to my world of horrors, Okay. But anyway, I'm looking at the indictment. There, was a pre there were two press releases issued by the FBI on Monday of this week. I've just written an article for Front Page Magazine about it. I presume they will be publishing it hopefully within the next couple of days, and it really lays things out. Uh, because, you know, I bring a different perspective to the issue than most people because of my background, 
uh, as a 30-year veteran of the old INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service. In fact, I was on with David Webb earlier this week. Um, I think it was Wednesday of this week. And he gave me just about a half hour. And, you know, that's an extraordinary lengthy interview for David Webb. I have tremendous respect for him. He's a great journalist. And we were focusing on this case involving this FBI boss. And um, his name was Charles McGonagall, or his name is Charles McGonagall, former senior official of the FBI. I'm reading from the indictment. Uh, and what happened was that Charles McGonagall and Sergei Shestakov, who had been a diplomat for Russia, I believe, I believe his tenure was something on the order of 30 years, many years as a translator. Here we go again, working for the Russians, mostly in New York, which is where Charles McGonagall was assigned for, for quite a while, uh, again, doing counterintelligence. Counterintelligence is a spy catcher. They try to recruit foreign nationals who have intelligence that will be useful to the United States, and they try to identify spies working in opposition to the United States, straight out of the old movies from the 50s, you know. But it's an ongoing battle, spy versus spy. And these people were the spy catchers, and he was running them. So he could decide to open or close cases. He could decide resources to be allocated to investigations. And in fact, I don't know if you recognize the name, but he was involved with the initiation of Operation, um, uh, what was it, Hur uh, Crossfire Hurricane, the investigation into allegations that President Trump's campaign was colluding with Russia. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that McGonagall was the uh, one of the FBI agents, senior officials, who was responsible for opening that investigation? So you have to wonder what he's really been involved with. Again, he's only alleged to have committed crimes. He, he may be as innocent as fresh-driven snow. Maybe. Under our system of justice, we make the presumption of innocence before we convict. Maybe he'll be exonerated. I'm not holding my breath, but I just want to make the point that as of right now, he only stands accused, not convicted. But the charges are so significant that you have to wonder if this is a one-off or if he's done other things in the past. Because the amount of money involved with a couple hundred thousand dollars isn't enough that someone in his position, you would think, would gamble with his future, right? It's not millions of dollars. And with his background, if he went to work in corporate America, he could probably earn the amount of money he's alleged to have taken in a year or two. And then what? Why would you do it? Has this been a pattern of conduct that he's engaged in in the past? That's something the FBI better be looking into. They better be looking at all the cases that he was involved with, not the current, the current case, because what he is alleged to have done is to help a, a um, Russian oligarch, because he was sanctioned, to get him off the sanctions list. And he also, in, in, by way of helping him, opened an investigation into a rival oligarch from Russia. And the guy that he was involved with uh, also, you know, had ties to Putin and so forth, and with everything in the Ukraine and everything going on in Russia, this is very disturbing. But the indictment has nothing about Crossfire Hurricane. It's purely about his interaction with Sergei Shostakov, this former Russian diplomat who became an American citizen, apparently. So, bingo, there's immigration. How carefully... Well, we did, was he vetted? How carefully could we vet him? Now, remember, the guy was a Russian diplomat, wanted to become an American. That happens. That's fine. But you would think that a diplomat from an adversarial nation would come to, under extreme scrutiny. He held a position in the Russian government when it was still the Soviet Union. All right, so understand what we're talking about. So this guy knew Charles McGonagall, I'm going to presume, because of his work as a translator, McGonagall dealing with Russian individuals and Russian oligarchs, undoubtedly their paths crossed, which gave that opportunity for the connection to be made. And the allegation was that Sergei Shestakov hooked up um, McGonagall with a, by, with a Russian oligarch by the name of Deripaska. And in order to pay him, they gave him a, a fake ID and, a, and a, a cell phone and a different name and an alias. It was straight out of a spy novel. 
but again, it all started with this guy, this is Sergei Chestakov, who gets hired. Think of this. He, get, he retires from the Russian government, becomes a United States citizen, and then gets hired to work in the U.S. court system and for federal agencies as a translator. Now, what did I say about the sensitive nature of the work that translators and interpreters do? So this guy was having access to federal agents, to defendants, to informants, to the court system. Talk about being properly positioned to do some heavy damage. And when you look at Charles McGonigal, you got to say, well, wait a minute, how, how, how dumb is this if, in fact, the allegation is true? And, and then as you go along in, in reading through the indictment, you realize that Shestakov also introduced McGonigal to an individual, a Russian, whose daughter purportedly wanted to uh, work for the New York City Police Department. So he arranges for this young girl who's still in college, a Russian young lady apparently, and hooks her up with the New York City Police Department counterterrorism unit. You know, the NYPD has a counterterrorism unit because after 9-11 there was dissatisfaction because it was clear that the CIA and the FBI weren't sharing intelligence with, with the NYPD. And the commissioner at the time said, this is nonsense. We're going to send our detectives around the world to be our eyes and ears to try to prevent the next terrorist attack. And, you know, I've worked on terrorism investigations, which is why the 9-11 Commission reached out to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with how all of these things kind of fit together. So um, here you have Sergey getting Charles McGonigal to have a meeting with this girl using his contacts in the NYPD. Again, understand. A special agent in charge of, counter of counterintelligence at the FBI would have tentacles that reached out in all sorts of directions with the New York City Police Department, New York State Police Department, other police departments, perhaps foreign governments, uh, three-letter intelligence agencies. I mean, this guy was sitting at the junction of all intelligence, and which also leads into law enforcement. I mean, talk about being positioned. Holy smoke. And so they kept him, and they say, and by the way, can you help this young lady? And it's alleged that um, McGonagall arranges for her to, uh, to have a meeting with this girl, who's the daughter of what they called Agent One. And, and, and so let me see if I could find it for you. Uh, bear with me for one moment. It'll just take me a second. Hopefully, I should have had this prepared. Shame on me. I screwed up today but it'll just take me a moment to get this for you because it's really important to understand just how far ranging this relationship between the former Russian diplomat and the former special agent in charge, as we refer to them as a SAC, S-A-C, um, you know, understand how many connections were being made by all this. And this is really worrying because there's no telling just exactly how far this has gone. You know, how many other cases are involved? How many other agents may have possibly been corrupted or the system been corrupted? And then so you have to ask, well, how thoroughly was uh, McGonagall's background investigations being done periodically to make certain that everything was on the up and up? Uh, I'm sure that he would have been good at concealing funds and that sort of thing, having done the work that he did for so many years. But, but, you know, who checks the checkers? Who watches the watchers? That's always a big problem, right? And so here we are. Okay. I just want to read to you this one paragraph about how he got involved with the NYPD. Um, and here it is. And in the indictment, it's item number 13. Shestakov connects McGonagall to Agent 1. Deripaska's agent. Agent one, again, another Russian, apparently, working in the United States. Well, how did he get a visa? How carefully was his visa screened and vetted, right? So let me just read this directly out of the indictment. In or about the spring and summer of 2018, Sestakov asked McGonagall to help Agent One obtain an internship with the New York City Police Department for Agent One's daughter in the fields of counterterrorism, intelligence gathering, and international liaising. McGonagall agreed to help, and he requested assistance from a contact in the NYPD telling the contact, quote, 
I have an interest in her father for a number of reasons. McGonagall also informed an FBI supervisor who worked for McGonagall that McGonagall wanted to recruit Agent One, who was, according to McGonagall, a Russian intelligence officer. Through McGonagall's efforts, Agent One's daughter received VIP treatment from the NYPD, an NYPD sergeant assigned to brief Agent One's daughter, subsequently reports the event to the NYPD and the FBI, because among other reasons, Agent One's daughter claimed to have, a, quote, an unusually close relationship to an FBI agent who had given her access to confidential FBI files. And it was unusual for a college student to receive such special treatment from the NYPD and the FBI. Think of that. Think of that. So you, you look at that and you say, holy smoke. And, and, and so this is really a very serious problem because this former Russian diplomat, Chestnikov, was working McGonagall on so many levels, it would appear. Again, these are allegations. I want to be clear about it. But look at how this endangers us. You know, they always talk about a mole in the spy agencies. Well, if the allegations are true, that's precisely what he was. And how did it happen? It began with a translator that we gave citizenship to, who was then able to get a job in a sensitive position working for the federal court system and federal agencies, a former Russian diplomat. How carefully did they screen him? You know, what of my areas of concern? What if the FBI said to this guy, hey, Shostakov, we'll give you your pension. That's great. But you stay in the United States. He's living in Connecticut, by the way. And you can keep working here. You like it here, right? And maybe you could help us recruit some people to help us gather intelligence or maybe even destabilize the U.S. government. You know, you have to ask the question. It's not in the indictment. But did Crossfire Hurricane come about uh, because, because Shestakov or somebody else reached out to McGonagall to convince him to do it? I don't know. This is pure and utter speculation. Nothing more. I'm just asking a question because that's how you do investigations, right? Voltaire said you judge a person's intelligence by the questions they ask. So I remember when I went to college, I took a whole bunch of classes. I started out as an engineering major. Uh, just on a, on a personal note, I lost my parents within a year of each other, so my ability to study kind of went down the drain. And I was the first person in my family to go to high school, forget college. Sadly, my parents weren't around when I graduated college, so it made that a particularly difficult day. On the one hand, I was ecstatic to get my degree, but there was a, a hole in my heart because they weren't there to share that moment with me. But um, I did promise them I was going to get a degree. I barely graduated. I'm, you know, one of those <laughs> C graduates, kind of like Colin Powell, the late, great Colin Powell. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I took a degree in communications, arts, and sciences. But I also took other classes, and one of the classes was a political science class. And I will never forget the professor in this class, and it was called Comparative Governments. And what he said was interesting. He said that when the citizenry of a country um, feel that their government lacks political legitimacy, almost inevitably the consequence is revolution. How better to attack the legitimacy of a government than convince the people of that country that the election was rigged? that their vote didn't count, that this is not really a democratic process. Did that happen? Don't know. But it's a question worth remembering. It's a question worth cogitating about. Could it be that this was also an element to what Mr. McGonagall or others at the FBI, who knows who else may have been impacted by what's going on, they're going to have to do a lot of digging throughout the FBI now to find out if anybody else has been compromised. And if Russia wanted to destabilize the United States, if Iran wanted to destabilize the United States, if communist China wanted to destabilize the United States, if North Korea wanted to destabilize the United States, how better than to call into question the legitimacy of the 2016 election? the election that to this day Hillary Clinton claims she won. By the way, for all the Democrats running around saying that when you challenge the election, you're looking to create an insurrection, why does everyone seem to forget that Hillary was adamant that she had actually won the election? 
And in the process, we've destabilized our own government, haven't we? Some dots worth connecting and some dots worth thinking about. Moving right along. Chinese nationals sentenced to eight years for acting within the United States as an unregistered agent of the People's Republic of China. This young man joined a reserve unit in the U.S. Army here in the United States and concealed his involvement with Chinese intelligence. And, you know, so many people have said to me over the years, what we need to do with the illegal aliens in particular is sign them up in the military and they could show their loyalty to the United States. What a great idea. They'll go in harm's way for us. What a bad idea. Now, I want to be clear. We have had many foreign fighters in our military who gave up their lives defending America. I do not want to diminish what they did. There are many people in the military right now who are as loyal to America as anybody else. My concern is simply this. We've seen, we've seen insider attacks. We saw what happened at Fort Hood, and we've seen insider attacks throughout the Middle East where someone says, I'm going to join the military, I'm going to join law enforcement, whatever. And when the opportunity presents itself, they open fire on the people that they're supposed to be helping. We have no idea who we're letting into the military. And I know from my own personal experience as an immigration agent that back in the late 1970s, we had a very strange situation happening. We had a bunch of Jamaicans. It's not just Mexico, folks. Let's get away from this Mexican crap. And when these politicians talk about Mexico, tell them that they're fools. Go to those town hall meetings and ask them, well, what are you going to do about the aliens who come in with, with visas they never should have gotten or under fake names or, uh, you know, on ships? Uh, and not all ships, by the way, go into ports of entry. Just like the Mexican border, people try to get in where there's no port of entry. You don't think boats are showing up along our coastlines? You don't think that fishing boats go out in the middle of the night with five fishermen on board, meet a ship at sea, and then mysteriously return with 30 people on that boat in the middle of the night and nobody notices? They didn't go through a port of entry. But I guarantee you that kind of stuff is happening. Think of the boat, the Golden Venture. Look it up after my program. I've written about it. It was a ship that came from China that went aground in the Rockaways. It was a horrific situation with a couple of hundred illegal alien Chinese aboard, as I remember. And they tried to sneak into the United States, not through a port of entry, by, by disgorging their passengers on a beach somewhere. This is going on. It's not just the Mexican border. And you have to be myopic or stupid to not understand it. But, but the whole point to this is that we have no idea who we're letting into the country. And, and yet we're being told, just focus on the Mexican border. And, and people have come to me and they said, you know, we should be giving, letting these people into the military and speed their application to citizenship, which we do if you're in the military uh, during a time of war. It takes a year to become a U.S. citizen. That's fine. But do we really know who we're letting into the military? When you go to a military base, and I've been on a number of military bases, they take security super seriously. You have armed guards in the guard booth. There's a perimeter. They don't want people getting onto that base because there's weapons, there's soldiers, there's, there's you know, all kinds of technology, intelligence. It's a treasure trove, a military base. So we're going to keep them out by putting guards in the guard booth, but we're going to wind up giving people an opportunity to serve in the armed forces without knowing who they are. It's the same thing with our border. We're going to put up a border wall, and we need the border wall. And people say, well, the fence goes over the wall. You don't need a fence. You need a green card, right? So an alien who enlists in the military walks through the front gate. They welcome him. Hey, how you doing, Charlie? Glad you're here. Okay, great. Do we know who Charlie really is? And I, and I wrote about that because there was a push on when um, um, there was an, an election for um, Eric Cantor. And he was supporting something known as the Enlist Act. And the Enlist Act would target illegal aliens to enroll them in large numbers in the U.S. military. And I said, this is crazy. And I went to the guy running against him in the primary. And I said to him, listen, this is a catastrophe. We have no idea who these people are. And giving them a rapid path to citizenship if they join the military is dangerous. Because I told them about the situation back in the late 70s. We had people from Jamaica, Trinidad. Um, Panama, the Caribbean, basically, and, and the top part of, of South America. 
and they were joining the armed forces. They came to America on agriculture visas. They were supposed to pick fruit in Florida and apples in upstate New York. They had agriculture visas, and they disappeared. Either they never went to those farms, or they looked at the farm work and said, this is too difficult. I'm not going to do that. And they, they, they were contacted by recruiters in the U.S. Marines because they were down on their quotas for recruitment. And there were a couple of recruiters who got jammed up because they provided these illegal aliens with fake IDs so they could enlist them, and they inflated their enlistment numbers that way. And once in the military, these guys, and they were criminals, they were violent, got all their basic training. They learned our playbook. They learned how to handle heavy weapons and learned tactical training. And then they went AWOL in many cases. And they stole high-powered weapons from the armory on the military bases. And we had a series of commando-style bank robberies all over New York City where a lot of people got shot and some people died tragically. Why? Because we enlisted people that we had no business enlisting. This isn't a game. This is not a game. And so, I, I, you know, I, I warned about the military and allowing people in, and I believe it was 2017, I, I wrote an article about this, this process that they had, this program to enlist aliens into the military, and I said, we can't bet them. Well, that's exactly what happened with this individual from China. And if you go to the front page of my announcements of today's show and, and click on the link, uh, you'll see the DOJ press release about how this guy, um, you know, joined the military and, and, and lied about everything. I, I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And, and this goes back to precisely what my concern was. My concern being, of course, that you have people joining the military so that they can get training. Maybe God forbid carry out an insider attack as we've seen in the past, Right. This isn't far-fetched. This isn't science fiction. This is something that really happened. And, and, and that was my concern. So I wrote this article back in 2017, and here it is, 2023, and we have an individual from China charged with lying when he joined the military so he could commit espionage against the United States. So once again, this is an immigration story. Finally, let me see what. Finally, and I've written about this in the past, the final report is that, um, and, and this again, this report was issued this morning. The one about China was January 25th. Just before I went on air today, Justice Department announces charges of new arrest in connection with assassination plots directed from Iran. There's a woman in the United States who was a famous dissident author, very critical of Iran. A couple years ago, the effort was made to kidnap her and put her on a boat in Brooklyn, because she lives in Brooklyn, and the boat was going to take her to Venezuela, because Venezuela works hand in glove with Iran. That's the same Venezuela that, that Smoke and Joe Biden wants to buy petroleum from. It's a communist regime. For decades, Iran has been working closely with the Venezuelan government sending their Quds forces, their shock troops, to Venezuela. And Venezuela is always very happy to provide ID, passports, and so forth to people who are not their citizens, provided uh, it meets criteria that they're interested in. And certainly, they consider America to be their adversary. So yet another reason why that Mexican border is so dangerous. You have terrorist training camps in the tri-border region of Brazil, where Brazil abuts with Argentina and Paraguay. We know that Venezuela is working closely with Iran. There have been hearings back in 2018 about how Hezbollah, which is a, an Iranian-backed and Iranian-directed terrorist group, have thousands of operatives working throughout Latin America with human traffickers, drug smugglers, often one and the same, the cartels, to flood America with narcotics and people. This is a fundraising mechanism for Iran's terrorism program, and it also provides Iran to do two things, kill lots of Americans with narcotics, and boy, the death count is outrageous, and we're doing nothing about it, except encouraging more people to use drugs. How brilliant. Think about that. We'll give you free needles. We'll give you a place, a safe place to shoot up. And we're losing, what, 100,000 that we know of to drugs? And the drugs lead to violence. The drugs lead to dysfunctional families. The drugs fund the gangs. We are hollowing out America from within, and... 
this is being done, aided and abetted by both parties because they won't step up to the plate. Finally, you've got some Republicans saying, you know, we should be using military assets to go after the cartels in Mexico. And they're right. This is an act of war against America. I don't know if you know this, but during the Second World War, Japan came up with the idea of floating balloons with explosives to the United States as an act of sabotage. And some people were killed by these exploding balloons. Sending, you know, methods of death, weapons of death to our country is considered an act of war when it's done by another state. What else is an act of war? We're going to kill your people. They've sent how many tons of drugs to America? And the administration treats it like, oh, too bad. I will tell you, and again, I'm a registered Democrat. These aren't Democrats. These are deathocrats. Maybe they're getting campaign contributions from the funeral home industry because sure as hell they're drumming up a ton of business for that industry, aren't they? But the idea was that there were four operatives of Iran, this was back in 2021, who were going to drug this woman, put her on a boat here in Brooklyn, and send the boat to Venezuela where Iranian operatives would be waiting to take her to Iran to either execute her, imprison her, but basically to shut her up. Think about that. Think about that. And and, and this is who we're now doing business with. In fact, I I wrote an article about this on um, July 19, 2021, alleged Iranian kidnap plots target Iranian-American dissidents in Brooklyn. Okay? Last year, if you remember, there was an individual from Azerbaijan who went to this woman's house. He was caught by the cops with an AK-47 with the serial numbers obliterated, but it did say made in China, another one of our close friends. And I had to go through five or six articles, but I finally found something interesting. This guy had a Social Security card in his wallet and an expired employment authorization document. Well, here's the question. Employment authorization documents are provided to aliens by immigration authorities at Citizenship and Immigration Services. I call that division of DHS America's locksmith because they give out the keys to the front door. So this guy, believe it or not, had an expired EAD, employment authorization document, in his pocket. And he told the cops that he was looking around in Brooklyn because he lived in Yonkers and the rent was too expensive in Yonkers. And he just happened to have a gun and a couple thousand dollars of cash and an expired employment authorization document. But the way it was reported in the news, it was Yonkers man arrested. That Yonkers man has now been charged with several other Iranians in a plot to kill that same woman who was a journalist. Why was he granted an employment authorization document? How did he enter the United States? Why in the world do we keep hearing that he's a Yonkers man when his citizenship is from Azerbaijan? Is this not also an immigration story? Now, maybe he ran the Mexican border. God only knows because no one's telling us how he got here. But all that I do know is that these three major stories that broke this week alone are actually immigration stories, at least to some extent. The diplomat who got arrested along with the FBI SAC, the Chinese young man who joined the military, and the Iranians who came to the United States to kill this woman. They all had to enter the United States in order to carry out the crime. These are immigration stories, probably not involving the Mexican border. And yet, all we hear about is once we secure the Mexican border. Are our politicians that stupid or that corrupt? That's the only two possibilities. There is no other possibility. Because if you understand immigration, and if you review the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel, which is an official government document that was authored by the federal agents and the prosecutors who were assigned to work with the 9-11 Commission, I I know most of them, in fact. Or if you look at the 9-11 Commission report itself, it identified immigration fraud as the key method of entry and embedding for terrorists. And I don't remember if I said this last week, but I'll I'll say it now. The very first time that I appeared before a congressional hearing in Washington was on May 20th, 1997, four and a half years before 9-11. And the topic of the hearing was immigration fraud, 
and visa fraud, immigration benefit fraud and visa fraud. People lying on applications to get green cards, citizenship, political asylum. And we knew that that was what was involved in every one of the players in two terror attacks carried out in 1993. In January 93, a Pakistani by the name of Kansi applied for asylum, bought into a courier van service that had authorization to park in the parking lot of the CIA. And in January of 1993, this guy jumped out of the van, not with packages for the CIA, but with death to several of the agents because he had an AK-47 and he opened fire. And realized that when bad guys come to America to do these sorts of things, unlike Americans, they have a back door they can escape through. They can get out of Dodge and go back to their home country all too frequently out of the long reach of the arm of the law, except in the case of Kansi, given the nature of his crimes, our guys working with Pakistani intelligence found him, brought him back to the United States, put him on trial. He was found guilty. He was executed, but it didn't bring back the dead. It didn't cure the wounds of the people that he shot. And then one month later, we have the bombing at the World Trade Center. The vehicle used, that big truck, was rented by an illegal alien and driven by a different illegal alien, and now we're giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens. So we put up all these barricades against car bombs and truck bombs, but meanwhile, who's behind the wheel? And to that point, earlier this week, there was an attack on the West Side Highway within sight of what was Ground Zero. Now we've got the new World Trade Center there. And he mowed down eight bicyclists, including several tourists from Argentina. He was just found guilty. Motor vehicles are being used as weapons around the world. And we can't wait to give driver's licenses to people who are quote-unquote undocumented, which means they can't prove who the hell they are. But we've lost almost all of our expectations of privacy in the name of national security. The Biden administration and the Democrats want to hire 87,000 IRS agents, and the brilliant Republicans say, oh, no, don't do that. Hire Border Patrol. No, but how about ICE agents, folks? Because that's what we really need. We have millions of illegal aliens wandering around the United States, and we're clueless as to who they are or where they are. And if they don't show up for hearings, who's going to compel them? The dog catchers? The Border Patrol has no mission inside the country. That's why they're called Border Patrol. You know, border as in the U.S. border. So once you get about 50 miles or so inside the United States, their mission ends. So who's going to look for the aliens to fail to show up for the hearings? Who's going to put those aliens, if they are ordered, deported on airplanes to execute the warrant, as I've done many times? We only have about 6,000 ICE agents, thanks to George W. Bush, and most of them aren't doing immigration work because when he put DHS together, he folded immigration in with a whole bunch of other agencies, which violated the Homeland Security Act. It's both sides of the aisle. It's both sides. It's not one or the other. This is collusion. How do we create the illusion that we're doing what the American people want but meanwhile, we'll do the bidding of the people who bribed us, Chamber of Commerce, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, all these NGOs, they call them nonprofits. Wow, that's rich. They get hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts, but they have the chutzpah to call themselves nonprofits. Really? Nonprofits? Wow. You know, to call them nonprofit is like saying that you go to a brothel looking for virgins. Are you kidding me? They are profiting and profiting mightily. And when the government uh, was, was threatened with shutdown and they, they passed the omnibus spending bill, $4 billion with a B allocated to dealing with the border emergency. Not to secure the border. It's in writing. Can't use the money for any kind of enforcement actions or any buildings. Uh-uh. This is about providing these so-called, um, what do they call them, the migrants with with health services and housing and food and shelter, three hots and a cot, you know, the whole bit. Really? So that all flows through these NGOs. And I'm sure the NGOs are making campaign contributions. Or as I wrote about not long ago, one NGO in particular got well over $100 million from the Biden administration to deal with the aliens, and $17 million went for beds that were never even used. And you say, well, how did this company get over $100 million and, 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 you know, get $17 million for something that wasn't even used, what's the connection? Well, there's an easy connection, and Judicial Watch, to their credit, did a little bit of digging and came up with an Inspector General report, 
and they found that an individual who had worked for the Biden administration during the transition over at DHS quit the administration and became one of the bosses, one of the leaders in that NGO. And about a month or two after he got his job, he also got a paycheck. Well, no, I won't call it a paycheck, but his company got a massive contract, uh, you know, for over $100 million. The money goes round and round. It's a revolving door. So you look at corruption at the FBI, and, and you look at what went on with uh, the investigation into Donald Trump and, and the people that were close to him. You look at Alejandro Mayorkas, who lies through his teeth, sits there with that grin on his face before Congress. Oh, the border is secure. And meanwhile, the videos are very clear. There's a human tsunami crossing every damn day. This is all malfeasance. This is all corruption, corrupt to the bone. I never thought I would see the day when our government would be as corrupt as it is. This is corruption. You can't be this screwed up by accident. This is by design. This is by design. And it's funny that the Attorney General Garland issued a press release about the arrest of these Iranians and the indictment that they extradited a couple of others. It's a major ring that was operating at the behest of the Iranian government. You got Joe Biden wanting to still do the nuclear deal with Iran and give them all kinds of money and buy their oil. What in the world are we doing? Giving money to the people that want to kill us and destroy our government? Why don't we give them guns? Why don't we send them some nuclear weapons? Then they won't have to worry whether theirs will work. You know, I'll never forget Donald Trump telling the leader of North Korea when North Korea rattled its sabers and launched the missiles, and Trump said, yeah, my, my button is bigger than your button, and we know my button works, right? So, so maybe we'll, we'll do that next. Maybe, maybe we'll swap nuclear weapons for oil. How's that, Joe Biden? I mean, what are we doing? We are supporting and sustaining regimes that want the United States to end. Just stop and let what I said sink in. It's not that we have the disagreements. These people chant death to America, and they mean it. What are we doing? If we're supposed to be championing freedom, what are we doing? Supporting dictatorial regimes, terrorist regimes. And, and Garland, well, we can't allow this. This woman was exercising her freedom of speech. You try to exercise your freedom of speech and see what happens. And now there's a bill circulating around in Congress and, and I know Sheila Jackson Lee, and I wonder what in the world she's thinking. I testified for her twice as her witness at congressional hearings. If you say the words um, replacement theory, that's hate speech, and we should be able to prosecute you. Prosecute Americans for speaking their minds, and you have an attorney general, you know, standing there. We won't allow people to go after people on American soil who have the right to exercise free speech. As long as we like what you're saying, is that what they mean by free speech? At what point do we wake up and say this has to stop? So the Republicans want to claim that they want to do the right thing? Tell me something. Why in the world aren't the Republicans funding ads warning people about drugs? The cigarette commercials have been super effective. My mother used to say actions speak louder than words. The Republicans want to win in two years? Well, how about stepping up to the plate and showing the American people where they stand on the issue of narcotics and the huge number of Americans who are dying every year, many of them children. They have their lives in front of them and they're dead or their families are decimated. It's about leadership, folks. It's about leadership. I remember a Supreme Court judge once said it's hard to define pornography, when, but, but you know it when you see it. You could say the same thing about leadership. I don't see much leadership coming out of anybody. And America and Americans are paying one hell of a price. We, the people, have to turn it around by convincing the politicians once and for all that we're not the idiots that they've been playing us for. And that's why I always make the point that democracy is not a spectator sport. Please get involved. Have the conversations with your neighbors. Check out my articles at the front page. And send the link to the pod, to my podcast tonight to as many people as you can. Be part of my bucket brigade of truth. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe. See you next week right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. So long for now. <laughs>